Hey, do you teach yoga? Have you ever trained to lead yoga classes to be a yoga therapist? Have you ever owned a yoga studio? Maybe even just wondered what it was like for the women and men up there in front of the room on their mats, leading you through endless Surya Namaskars, down dogs, and pranayamas galore? Well, these are their stories and mine. I'm Rebecca Sebastian, a 20-year yoga teacher, 10-year yoga therapist, yoga studio owner, and co-founder of a yoga-focused nonprofit. I've done a lot in the yoga world over the last 20 years, pretty much everything except had a water cooler. You know, a place to share stories, talk about struggles, successes, and find other people who do the same thing that I do. Welcome to Working in Yoga, a podcast and substitute water cooler for yoga folks to connect and build community, to share our unique profession, our challenges, and our journeys with the world. Hey friends, welcome to Working in Yoga. This week on the podcast, I'm Daniel Simpson, and this is another one of those conversations that I recorded in late December, and I've been talking about it constantly since. Daniel texts us about praise, activism in the yoga community space, asks us to think about how we can be good citizens, even if the yogic texts don't necessarily explicitly say that, and also encourages us to entertain the idea that we might be wrong. <clears throat> I'm sure he wasn't talking about me, right? Anyway, that feels like a huge ask, but a worthwhile one. Now, before we begin with this discussion, will you do me a favor and follow the podcast from wherever you're listening? This tells the algorithm that people enjoy our podcast, and then it shows the podcast to more people like you. I'm a firm believer that we will make more community and impact on our industry if we are talking and connecting together. And this little thing invites more yoga professionals to join us around the water cooler. Also, if you're feeling spicy, and it is Valentine's Day week, my friends, a review of the podcast on your preferred platform also helps. So go ahead and drop those five stars and tell people why you love working in yoga. Before we begin, thank you as usual to Sunlight Apothecary, a regular sponsor of the podcast. We are already thinking spring in the apothecary and gathering our best teas to partner with the first flush of green. Join us for our Spring Awakening Tea Series online at www.thesunlightexperience.com backslash apothecary. Now, I promise not to make you wait any longer. Here is my interview with Daniel Simpson. Hey, friends, welcome to Working in Yoga. Okay, this episode today is a continuing series on our weird obsession with perfectionism within the yoga industry. And I have a new friend, Daniel Simpson, on the podcast today. Daniel, will you tell everybody who you are and what you do? I'll try, although I don't always know <laughs> myself. Um, Fair. Yeah, um, I have been a yoga practitioner, um, I guess, inquirer in one way or another for the last uh, 25 years or so. And um, more recently have specialised in the history and philosophy of yoga, which I teach at uh, a university in London, the School of Oriental and African Studies, SOAS, and uh, also at the Oxford Centre for Hindu Studies. So um, I've become a bit of a yoga nerd professionally, <laughs> although <laughs> I have continued to practice, uh, you know, actually in terms of my own uh, pursuit of, uh, of yoga uh, away from the classroom. But uh, I've become more and more interested in talking about yoga and what it is we think we're doing with yoga, because I think that often just gets sort of assumed rather than interrogated. Yeah. How did you come into your own interest in yoga? 
Well, it's a long story, and the I'm, short I'm version. Ready. <laughs> the short version is uh, sort of by accident. Um, by travelling to India, as I say, a bit more than twenty-five years ago now, um, as a backpacker, um, stumbling on both yoga classes, but also traditional yogis um, who were quite wild, you know, semi-naked, dreadlocked, yeah. uh, <laughs> ash-smeared characters sitting around fires, and uh, I ended up going in two thousand and one to the Kumbh Mela, um, the biggest right. gathering of people on the planet, yeah. and. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I sort of through my interest in trying to understand both, you know, the, the world of these traditional yogis and some of the European hippies who were my parents' age who were hanging out with yeah. them. Um, I started to realize I needed to to try and do something practically with yoga. And so after, you know, dabbling in a bit of meditation, a bit of uh, physical yoga practice, I got a bit more serious with that. About 20 years ago, I became a quite regular and dedicated Iyenga yoga practitioner which uh, got me sucked into what BKS Iyenga claimed would be the path to enlightenment he said alignment is enlightenment in fact so if you could just get the postures exactly as they should be somehow yes. everything would light up like a Christmas tree but it didn't quite work that way for me <laughs> so that's so relatable I 25 years ago when I started started in an Iyenga studio as well so that story is very relatable and now I feel like this idea, this obsession we have with alignment that is just honestly perfectionism culture, like housed yeah. in this language of how our bodies are supposed to, and I'm using air quotes here, supposed to look in space. Over mm. your, you know, 20 years of practice, did you find that too? Well, yes. Um, I think, you know, the Iyengar tradition has, on the one hand, a lot to answer for, but also a lot to offer. I mean, yeah. a lot of the ways in which yoga asana is taught in, in the globalized sort of postural yoga space is influenced by BKS Iyengar's obsession with where to put your body parts and yeah. the whole idea of yeah. verbal yeah, yeah. instruction is, is something that he, you know, really refined. Um, but, you know, it was all with this assumption that there was some perfectible you know, essence, like a sort of platonic form of the posture that you could somehow mm -hmm. wring out of your body if you only did it, you know, dedicatedly enough but the problem always was and this was something that's actually enshrined in the way that teachers were trained um, was that you know, nobody could do it as well as him in his opinion and so yes. I, I saw him publicly <laughs> shame you know teachers who'd been with him for over 40 years uh, I'm thinking particularly of Patricia Walden who I watched yes. on stage in China being humiliated for her inability to stand straight in Tadasana um, you know she'd been practicing yoga for 40 odd years by this time and it was really just, you know, a, a, I guess a teaching tool for him to try and say we've got to keep inquiring into this, you know, sort of imperfectibility of the body. But he would always sort of couch it, first of all, in the language of there being something that we could aspire to that was perfect. Yeah. Um, and secondly, you know, to really drill down into this failure on our part to manifest it. And it was said in the UK teacher's training guide, never praise a student because then you're basically bigging yourself up as their teacher saying, you know, aren't I a great teacher? I've taught them well. Instead, only correct their mistakes. So it just had this bias towards shame and the idea that, you know, must try harder and must push further. That is really interesting to me. The idea that praising your student is essentially praising yourself. Mm. Huh. Say more about that. Well, it's an interesting one because uh, Iyengar was implicitly praising himself a lot. I think he had quite... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> 
quite a yes. string of insecurities and uh, therefore felt, you know, he needed to try and prove himself independently. He only spent a couple of years with his guru, Krishnamacharya, then was sent yeah. off to fend for himself and did develop this system by himself that led him into contact with, you know, celebrities and even I think the Belgian royal family at one point. Um, yeah. And then he became a name. And so he wanted to talk about how he had improved on and perhaps even surpassed what his guru taught um, and also that he was better than Patabi Joys, who he was increasingly annoyed to find people were keen yeah. to go and visit to learn Ashtanga, <laughs> which had all come from the same place too. Um, so he was, you know, full of himself on the one hand, and yet on the other hand, sort of somehow standing outside of his own rule. And the way I think he made that make sense to himself was he would always talk down to his students. So he would shame them, but there was nobody there to shame him. I think that's very interesting. And, and you're correct here. One of one, so I feel two ways about what you've just said. One is that how human of him, because yes. it would be extraordinary. It takes an extraordinary person to stand in front of a room of people who have given you credit for changing your life and have that person say, oh, no, it's not me. That's it's yeah. a heady feeling. I mean, it's a heady feeling in a room of five people, let alone in a room of 500 people. But also, like, he, he's also a jerk. <laughs> like, <laughs> Well, 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 indeed. And, and and in fact, he did sort of, you know, stand on the stage and say, aren't I wonderful? So he, you know, he, yeah. he was somehow transcending his own categories, um, while also talking down to his students. So he didn't praise them, but he praised himself. So he skipped the stage that was supposedly going to lead to that fault and manifested it. <laughs> <laughs> so can we blame this perfectionism thing on Iyengar? <laughs> no, I don't think that would be fair. Okay. And as I say, okay. I do think Iyengar has contributed a lot of very helpful things. But yeah. you know, it's often the case that sort of systems get you know, ossified around an idea. Yeah. And the idea in his system that really kind of got a little too rigid was this perfectibility of in, you know, alignment. But other schools have got other ideas about what can be perfected. And uh, I mean, just to take Ashtanga as an example yeah. that came from the same source, a lot more loose in the sort of, you know, define definition of what makes a perfect posture but still very clear standards you've got to get one right to your teacher's satisfaction before they deign to give you the next one yeah and so there is this obsession with you know continually advancing continually trying to wring more accomplishments out of the body as if that is somehow going to lead to some deeper state of yoga rather than uh, either a, you know a bendier body or, yeah. or a broken body <laughs> yeah so okay so i'm working on this hypothesis I have this because I feel like yoga professionals are an interesting collective of people in general. Like we tend to be pretty highly educated for the amount of training it requires for entry level position in this job. Right. We're, we're really nerdy. Like we love, I, I can slide your book to like 20 people and they'll gobble it up in a weekend. Right. And I think that there's something to this idea that somehow outside of the yoga space, we experienced and existed in a place where we were told that perfectionism, that being perfect, being right, being good, good boy, good girl, good person, um, was how we were supposed to be. And so we slid into yoga spaces, especially Hatha yoga spaces, where we were supposed to be perfect, where you could, you could potentially get an A on your paper. And yeah. we went, oh, it's like home. And none of us questioned. <laughs> Well, there is definitely some truth to that, I think. And, uh, you know, as, as as I sort of 
yeah, I, my book, The Truth of Yoga, begins by saying that there isn't one truth. Yeah. Um, you know, I, th I think also there isn't you know, one person who's drawn to yoga. And I think there's a huge variety of experiences. And another one that I do think is quite common is people who are struggling in some way, particularly yeah. with this relationship with themselves. So yes. it's almost the flip side of what you were describing, actually a position of, you know, self-loathing and yeah. sense of not being good enough <laughs> and then desperately craving that elusive you know pat on the head or you know occasional word of praise from the teacher um, yeah. in order to demonstrate ah and I am worthy or even just to encounter within ourselves the feeling of it's okay yeah. being me and and yeah. and, and you know, having to keep pushing further like a drug addict who needs a, a stronger yeah. hit to get the same effect <laughs> to get deeper into this sense of it's okay because there's actually a sense that it isn't okay and that's yes. why we're running into the world of yoga so there's those two tendencies i think which are sort of flip sides of each other but there's probably plenty more so I'm curious why we don't talk about this more, because I feel like even the conversation itself can, the, the lack of conversation does a disservice to ourselves and our students. Um, what's with that? <laughs> well, I think it starts, you know, coming back to Iyengar, you know, he, he had to work hard to get where he was and he was yeah. proud. And yeah. also, you know, he didn't want to lie um, in the sense yeah. that you know he he knew he could do what he did better than a lot of the people who were in front of him and I expect he didn't actually ever think he trained anybody who could do it better than him um so you know he, he would have said he was being honest uh, but I think you know for most of us it is just a sense of we're in a position of authority when we're teaching mm -hmm. and yeah. to undermine our own authority by admitting that we don't have all the answers we're a bit of a mess ourselves sometimes we don't look like our Instagram feed might suggest um, yeah. is something that most teachers run a mile from and you know in my case I've, I've, I've really tried to embrace that recently since I've been talking about ideas of yoga firstly because I'm not enlightened you know I'm nobody's <laughs> guru uh, I'm just another person with lots of questions and so I really try to encourage people to feel like you know although I'm the one perhaps at the front of the room I'm just one of many in the room and we're all going to learn from each other. And, you know, I'm perfectly happy to talk about the ways in which I fall short of my aspirations or that yeah. I messed up. And, you know, the bit of my own backstory that I didn't quite sort of delve down into was yeah. through hanging out with these wild men yogis. I got confused into thinking that smoking lots of uh, very strong hashish would get me enlightened. Yeah. And I became a compulsive cannabis addict and then I eventually healed myself from a you know, drug dependency yeah. by becoming a yoga addict. And then that <laughs> led to me pushing yes. too far with us in the practice and hurting my body and you know I've, I've begun to talk about that and to say you know this is this is a warning I think for all of us to think about you know what are we doing that we're a bit too you know reluctant to talk about that hides under the radar that is actually self-harming in some way rather yeah. than self-healing and there's so much that's going on in yoga that isn't actually in the alignment with the number one precept of ahimsa of non-harming there's a lot of self-harming disguised as healing and you know the more yeah. honest we can dare to be about that the better the chances of eradicating it but the more we pretend it's not there you know, the, yeah. the trauma the trauma wounds will continue yeah. to beget more trauma I, I yes 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 I mean and it's I find it interesting and I'll I'll speak from my own experience so I had a fairly traumatic childhood which is why I found myself in yoga spaces and then as a young adult when I had my first son I was a single mother and I was doing all the things on my own and instead of taking a moment to process my own experiences I just did yoga every day all, like for every <laughs> 
<laughs> and while there there is some service to that and there are some some ways where i'm like oh i'm so grateful that i had this practice at that time so that i could show up for my son as whole as i could have been i also think that i did the same thing i became a yoga addict like that was just instead of sitting down to cope with what my situation was i was just in asana every day all day oh well i think you're far from alone there i think <laughs> yeah, so many true. people <laughs> self-medicating with us and then... <laughs> yeah but then when you start to really dive deep into the tradition of yoga what it asks of us it is asking us to deconstruct and so this is something we also have to deconstruct how do we start doing that other oh, than asking having, the question <laughs> but by having a conversation that arises yeah. from asking questions by by thinking that it's actually worth putting time you know on a studio timetable for people to come together and talk um it's yeah. not going to bring as many people as a handstand workshop for example but it's still you know really important yoga is inquiry and we mm. need some kind of structure to the inquiry and it's also you know a relational process even if traditional yogis yeah. like to try and think they could somehow escape all entanglements <laughs> <laughs> yeah. most of us are not trying to do that and no. you know are really just trying to get better entangled rather than you know, more painfully entangled yeah so we need to talk about it we need to talk together about it we need to learn from one another so having conversations is actually part of yoga I think that now in this, we're recording this at the end of 2023, people are listening, listening in 2024. Now is the time for those conversations more than ever, because we've gone through three years of COVID. Our industry has changed dramatically. The cultural landscape of the entire world, like the changes on our skin. I spoke with Ms. Michelle Cassandra Johnson recently, and she was like, yes. you can just feel it in the air. And things that so I've been on this sort of like rest and self-care and deconstruction train for a long time. And it was really lonely for, for a good <laughs> chunk of it, right? Like I was the only one just waving out the window at everybody in my area while everyone else was in a really lovely scorpion pose. <laughs> and yeah. I'm just like, but, but what about over here? But now I find people pay me a lot of money at my studio to come sit and talk about books that have meaning. And it blows me away. Like, do you feel that too that we're it's more culturally accepted that we can do this now um i do feel that way and that you know is what i've been fortunate enough to be able to do and part of that was through this you know pandemic facilitated online yoga shala that you know yeah. enabled people from all over the world to come together and speak but where i live in a fairly remote place it would be difficult to gather enough people together to cover the cost of hiring the hall in which we would sit so it is still a challenge you know this this whole yoga industry as it as yeah. it is to to try and make things pay and so people are often led towards what pays rather than you know what is most needed and what what most heals yeah. but I, I do agree that there is a much greater willingness to ask questions um i think also rewinding a few years before the pandemic um the whole me too moment and uh yeah. interrogation of the you know the obvious um misdeeds at the very yes. least and outright abuses of, of many senior yoga teachers in fact there's almost no li lineage of yoga that is untouched by this meant that people yes. started to say you know we need we need to really you know not rip everything up and throw it away but ask some very deep and searching questions about what we're actually doing here yeah. how much power are we giving away to you know hierarchies that don't deserve it how much are we perpetuating that through our own attitude to ourselves and to others and what do we need to do differently and part of that you know is still to be explored i think 
But also, even more importantly, what is yoga? <laughs> That's the big question. <laughs> and for a lot of, you know, most of the, the, the modern yoga practice world's experience of it, yoga has meant asana. And yeah. that's what anybody in the street will assume you mean by yoga. They think yoga means doing things on mats and uh, meditation is sitting on a cushion. But for most of the history of yoga, that's what yoga was, sitting still. And yeah. um, even you know to the point where actually the only real physical practice that's praised and said to lead you to the highest goals until very recently indeed is pranayama. Um, so si just sitting quietly, breathing tuning into being here is actually all that yoga is and you can do that in a wheelchair you do not need to be in a perfect scorpion pose um, and actually even underneath everything you're talking about sort of the undoing process almost mm -hmm. of yoga it's unwinding all of these layers of confusion that stop us from seeing that everything is actually just okay right the way that it is <laughs> <laughs> although true. obviously out there in the world there's all sorts of stuff that could use some improving um, and there's all sorts of tendencies within us that could use a bit of refinement you know, right at our core there's nothing to improve and yet at the same time, there's that paradox that if we were to just bliss yeah. out on that, we'd just be damaged people acting out in the sense that we were somehow, you know, walking goddesses. Yeah. And <laughs> that's where all the abuse came from. So we've got to kind of hold those two things in some sort of creative tension. Everything's fine yeah. just the way that it is. And yet we need to somehow work on ourselves. But that work needs to be subtle. It needs to be informed by kindness. You know, the, yeah. the message is the medium or the medium is the message. You know, so yeah. the path is the way. Um, being kind to ourselves is how we become kinder people. Um, and yeah. beating ourselves into submission in an attempt to somehow wring perfection out of the body is not going to help when we start relating to others. Because <laughs> yeah. that's our ingrained yeah. tendency yeah. that will carry on enacting. Ooh, I think you've you've hit on something that I really like here, that tension, this tension mm. of, and I see it and I feel it, the tension of self-improvement versus the tension of you don't need to improve. You're already everything that you need. And, and, and this is maybe a philosophy question too, because I think that yeah. oftentimes we in the West are not designed to hold that both of those truths to be true at the same time. That's very difficult. I mean, I'm here in the US, it is very clearly a Judeo-Christian kind of world where we have all grown up and that teaches us that there is one truth and yeah. it becomes really, really uncomfortable to sit in the fact that these two opposite things could be true at the same time. How do you, how, how do you work around that tension? Well, one, very clear statement that I think is quite helpful to come back to um, is there in the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali. Um, everybody knows the sutra about uh, stira sukhamasanam, you need to be in yeah. a steady and comfortable <laughs> pose. Yeah. Less, less of us talk about the next one, which says you get into that steady, comfortable pose by letting go of effort and getting absorbed in meditation. And even fewer talk about the fruit of that, which is the 48th Sutra of the Sadhanapada, the second chapter of the text, which says from there, you are no longer troubled by the dualities of opposites. Yeah. Um, and that's actually very specific. It's uh, the commentaries over the centuries have explained that's about being so absorbed in your meditation that you don't care about being in discomfort. And that's the source of the, the steady comfort. You, yeah. You're just yeah. you're, you're somewhere else. But um, actually, also, it's a, it's a reminder that yoga is about the integration of opposites, the transcendence of opposites, yes. the ability to hold these things in creative tension. Patanjali says the way to still your mind is this balance of apyasa and vairagya. So basically making an effort and letting go. <laughs> 
just kind of yeah. how do you do both of those at once so it's it's a walking contradiction yoga philosophy in a way and it's designed almost like a, a zen koan to deconstruct the mind yeah. the whole problem of yoga is that the, the tendencies in our minds that lead us to act in unhelpful ways so yes we might at our core be perfect but unless we do some spring cleaning that perfection does not manifest <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, I, yes, so much that in fact, that is in my mind, and we all teach differently. But when I teach asana, I teach for that purpose, I teach for, I purposely will put people in positions and be like, is your body going up? Is it going down? Look, you can be both things at the same time that can be true for your physical body that can be true for your brain that can be true for life. Mm -hmm. um, that's the part where actually I like asana. Asana makes it really tactile. You can touch that concept, you know? Exactly, yes. Yeah. Um, I want you to say a little bit more about duality because there is discomfort there. Do you mind? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think there's this obsession in the yoga world. It all comes from this idea. Yoga means union, you know, so everything yes. is about the oneness. <laughs> let's all bliss out. We are all one. Yeah. It sounds lovely. You know, John Lennon's Imagine starts, you know, <laughs> strumming away yes. in the background. Um, but, you know, let's let's actually get down to brass tacks. If all things are one, you know, I am you as you are me, etc. I am the walrus. Um, yeah. I've got a Beatles theme going on in yeah. my head today. Uh, but yeah, then then how do we have relationships if it's all the same thing underneath? Yeah. That might be the ultimate truth in one way of seeing, but it sort of jumps to the highest level. And in day-to-day -day reality, there is distinction. And yeah. actually, the cultivation of a skillful mind requires distinctions. We need to have a, a spectrum which is created by two poles that are opposites. Basically, the simplest version of this is suffering <laughs> and yeah. the removal of suffering. Am I yes. going towards more suffering or am I going towards removing suffering? Very few of us are at either end of that spectrum, lost forever in suffering or liberated. <laughs> yeah. So most of us are just having to orient ourselves somewhere on that pole. Uh, and you know, we then have to find all of the other different ways in which we're somewhere in the middle of lots of different you know, extremes. And once we've got that, then we can navigate you know, away from one and towards the other um but also also knowing that you know there's nothing to get attached to at the other end of the the, the extremes um it's just a way of reconciling and it all comes down in the end to not wanting anything and this is the problem i think for western yeah. culture yeah we're so steeped Ooh, in the idea yes. of me <laughs> mine yeah. what i need um, and the, 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 the liberation in yoga is liberation from wanting anything. You know, you're okay with everything just as it is. Even the fact that the world is terrible. Um, and what we need, I think, for the 21st century is a yoga philosophy that builds on the old yoga philosophy, which is pretty much where things stopped, saying, make your peace with reality as it is, whether you go for the dualistic yoga philosophy approach, the you know non-duality approach, which means just blissing out forever, you know, at one with the universe. They both basically stop there. They don't say, now having got to that realization become a good citizen um the bhagavad yeah. gita does that but that's got its own strange history and it's really a very rare example of talking about you know activity in the world is the highest manifestation of this understanding and i think we need to develop our own version of that that really says what we're trying to do here is to become more skillful in life which means 
in relationships, which means yeah. understanding differences, accepting you know, this full spectrum diversity that's out there and yeah. not trying to collapse it all into the same thing um, and yeah. you know, learning how to navigate. And for that, we need our own map and compass. And so we really need our own philosophy that sort of applies these basic principles to the actual realities of day-to-day -day life and, and perhaps, you know, enables us to say the highest aspiration of yoga is to work for the alleviation of everybody else's suffering, like yeah. the Bodhisattva vow of the Mahayana Buddhists. But there is no yoga text that actually says that. The Bhagavad Gita borrows some of that idea from Buddhist traditions, but um, it doesn't really give it quite the same full force expression. So a lot of us assume that's what yoga philosophy says, but we can't find old texts that put it that way because that's not really what they were written for. They were for the perfection of the process of getting out of this trap of being a human. <laughs> and most of us are quite keen to carry on in the world of being a human for the, for the rest of this lifetime perhaps just a little less trapped in you know, the, the unhelpful manifestations of it. So we really need yeah. to refine our own way of making this stuff make sense, which is where we come back to having conversations. Yeah, I want you to write that text. <laughs> I really well, I keep, I keep, I keep, I keep threatening to, but I honestly think we all need to write our own because I'll be writing from my perspective, and yeah, you know, that's where the duality yeah. really comes in. It's actually the, the the level that there are so many possible ways of seeing, you know, as many as there are people. Um, and although we can have our, you know, sort of sense that there's a higher perspective into which we can all sort of incorporate our bigger picture perspective, um, we're still living for most of the time in that limited here I am worldview. And so we need our own way of navigating between those two worldviews for starters, because we've yeah. got to find our own way back up into the big picture. <laughs> and uh, somehow, therefore, it's for us to inquire. Otherwise, you know, we're just following somebody else's instructions. And that's not really yoga. That's that's uh, rote learning. Yeah, that's okay. That's really fascinating. Because also, other liberation cultures, you know, um, again, I'm in the US. So think like black liberation culture talks hmm. about the same thing about how liberation comes through collective activity, this idea that we are ourselves, but all we are having an individual experience in a collective space, right? And we're, yes. we have to be doing both of those things. I actually, okay, so I, this is really funny you said that because I just said this in my yoga class last week <laughs> is that how I find it very interesting and in, in, I believe a skilled teacher has the opportunity to present this to their students that we can acknowledge you're having an individual experience as a yoga student and also a collective experience in a group asana class. And the teacher is navigating that for everybody. Like I can get everybody to feel a particular way based on how I've moved you and told you to breathe, but also you're having this individual experience as well. And there is something interesting that I find interesting to explore in even our asana classes that I think we can do that. Are you, do you see that as well? Absolutely. And I wholeheartedly agree with you that you know, doing things with the body is very accessible to people and it's yeah. also an accessible way of you know, engaging with these subtler ideas that can otherwise sound very abstract um, yeah. and I think another way into that is is also to, to think rather than yoga as the sort of umbrella term for what we're doing to go back to the you know the, the real sort of um, I guess uh, Indian 
um, umbrella term for for everything that we're talking about now, which is dharma, which is about the yeah. right thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I don't want to live in a world where somebody says there is only one right thing to do and they wag their finger and they tell me. I want to live in a world where it's up to me to try and figure out in accordance with some basic principles how I uh, in my own circumstances, do my best to manifest that um, and and accept also that there are other legitimate ways of coming to a different conclusion. Um, and, you know, that's what yeah. we're doing in our own bodies. You know, we've got a general framework for, you know, there's a, there's a class going on here. It's not just roll around on the floor and do whatever you feel like. We've got some pointers, but there'll be lots of different ways to interpret what we do with those things. And that's where I think, mm -hmm. you know, how to live in the world comes into its own. Yeah, I, I that's going to be the clip for this podcast, by the way, what you just said, I, already, <laughs> I just heard it. This Because I also don't want to live in a world where somebody else is wagging their finger at me and telling me what I'm supposed to be doing in order to be a good person. No. Um, I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church. I've done that. It wasn't <laughs> for me. <laughs> um, and we do that though within the yoga space there's that perfectionism 100%. thing rearing its ugly head again that person saying but 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 you're not it, yoga it all... unless <laughs> well exactly yeah and that's why i do think it's helpful to ask the what is yoga question but to hold the answer lightly it's a provisional answer it's what works for us at the moment it's not you know the the defining principle that we can etch in stone and then go around with our little flashing blue light being the yoga police and telling other people off for yes. not living in accordance with uh, and there's so much of that now <laughs> not just in the yoga space but more broadly in the activist yeah. world uh, which has informed a lot of this thinking in in yoga land yes. um, that is about you know we've got the right answer people who don't sign up to the program are the enemy and yes. firstly that doesn't tend to get those who don't sign up already to sign up. <laughs> Secondly, no. though, it, you know, it doesn't yeah, adhere to that basic principle we just talked about that, you know, none of us want to live in a world where we're told what to do. So there needs to be space for, for critical thinking, for inquiry, for there to be perhaps, you know, two truths that are in tension, as we've already talked about. Um, yeah. Depending on where you're situated, you will see things differently and, and it's okay. And there is a way that we can hold, um, you know, both of those truths together in a bigger truth of, you know, respect and acceptance and uh you know provision of circumstances whereby you know everybody can flourish hopefully although <laughs> so yes. many forces out there don't seem to think that way but you know nonetheless that's what we're trying to create in the yoga class for example and yeah. that can be you know a crucible for forging a way of being that we can take outside the class yeah Ooh, i love that you mentioned that this is very true not only in the yoga space but in the activist space because i do think that activist space has influenced us within the yoga paradigm within the yoga industry Hopefully. and what i find very frustrating because and i will say full-on i own a studio and i advertise to the activists in my own community and a lot of them come and practice at our space and what drives us all nuts is how <laughs> that conversation happens. We're just like, God, you, why are you our people, but you're driving us all crazy. Stop it. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what well, is that you see it and call it what it is? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's almost worse than arguing with somebody who has the opposite opinion, opinion of you. Like, you're my people and I still want to argue with you <laughs> like well now we're back to the perfectionism again it's, it's true. the narcissism of small differences you know yes. there's no bigger enemy than the person who thinks almost like you but just there's a little <gasps> bit different <laughs> oh that is a very good say more about that 
Well, I guess we see it all over the place. But I mean, the classic example, which everybody recognises when they look at it, is uh, summed up in Monty Python's Life of Brian, where <laughs> these <laughs> rebellious protesters are arguing amongst themselves about you know the Judean people's front versus the people's front of Judea. I mean, obviously, given what's going on in the Middle East, it's perhaps not the moment to make a you know, light of any of that. But still, um, it shows that within you know, movements, doing their utmost to resist injustice. There is this you know, burning sense of you know, absolute certainty about what the right thing to do is. And the yeah. deviators from that are the ones who are undermining the the, the the zeal that's required to see it through because you you have you know the, the weight of the odds stacked against you. So you feel like you're being weakened from within. And resistance movements have actually often you know, cannibalized <laughs> themselves um, through this yes. factional kind of strife that builds up um, instead of coming together. Whereas often, you know, it's, it's another sort of stock joke in a way, but the people on the right uh, will, will, I mean, left and right don't really mean much anymore. But no. um, nonetheless, let's just use that phrase for the sake of argument. We'll often just club together <laughs> as a good yeah. way of you know, <laughs> whatever the current jargon is owning the libs um because you know if we all pile on then, then we we achieve greater force in numbers and that mentality isn't there amongst those who are really trying to perfect the world to make progress in the world to improve yeah. the world um for the sake of you know the, the the benefit of many rather than just themselves and, and and there's a righteousness that creeps in there that makes it quite difficult yeah. to listen to challenge um, and it requires us all actually to do what yoga philosophy is telling us to do, which is to stop getting so hung up on me <laughs> and the idea that yeah. I got all the answers and you should listen to me. And instead to be open to the fact that really, as one of my teachers put it, I might be wrong. And yeah. I think that's the most helpful mantra that I've ever come across in the last five years of talking about yoga philosophy yeah. in a big way. It's that it's remembering I might be wrong and to keep all answers provisional. Yeah, you remind me very much of my friend Colise. She's a DEI educator here in the States and she always, so her job is to navigate people who are having these conversations. And she always reminds me because I like to be right. And I am I know that <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not alone in that, but it's enjoyable. Oh, me too. Right. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I have but to keep reminding okay. myself to let go. <laughs> yeah. Like she'll be like, lean into the relationship. Are you speaking with somebody who has a relationship that you value? Lean into that versus, and just like you said earlier, have conversations with people versus having like soliloquies where they're watching you and you're just up on the stage. <laughs> <laughs> and we have well, exactly. a lot of like single player soliloquy people here within the industry. How do we shift to collective conversation? Because we can't go to a place. We don't have like, a place where all the yoga people go and you can, you know, so I can say, hi, Daniel, it's nice to see you in person. Like we don't have that. No. And you know, that's what some of these sort of yoga, let's say industry bodies are, are supposed to be there for, but really they've got other functions. They're, you know, glorified uh, telephone directories or their you know, <laughs> yes. mechanisms for selling training programs or whatever they might be, even when they do have nobler aspirations. So they're never going to bring everyone together and also everybody's spread out, even if we can come together online. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think, you know, the place we end up going back to is, is yoga texts. And yeah. my favorite place to point to when thinking about this is in the 18th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. Um, 
I think verses 20 to 22, the 22nd verse, if I remember rightly, you know, forgive me if yeah. I've slipped up, talks about knowledge that is tamasic, that is, you know, dull minded and potentially ignorant. And that's knowledge that fixates on just one way of seeing. And that's what we see so much of these days. The previous verse is talking about knowledge that is rajasic, which is, you know, yeah. caught up in debate between different perspectives. So it's sort of effectively acknowledging that there are different ways of seeing, but they're sort of at loggerheads. They need to fight for the right to have their space <laughs> and then before that there is the sattvic way of seeing which is actually rooted in the understanding that there is this sort of commonality in all experience the same self is in all beings um, and uh, yet at the same time there is this unity in the diversity that allows for all these other points of view and that there is therefore a way of seeing and being that can embrace that degree of difference without you know turning it into a big fight over who's right while it's still at the same time tuning in to this this nobler aspiration of you know coming together in some way now obviously what form that takes in the real world is what we have to decide for ourselves there is no blueprint otherwise we're back to following orders but there is that sort of conceptual yeah. blueprint how do i expand my perspective so that i listen as well as just waiting to speak um, and yeah. so that I tune in to this idea of us this bigger mm. collective way of yeah. being rather than me and my concerns and you know, then we're doing yoga philosophy I think so that's a really helpful yeah. way of just sort of seeing there's, there's a hierarchy of knowledge um, and the place that we most often get stuck is is is, is really you know this this dull-minded fixation on our way of seeing and the, the, yeah. the more we can see that the easier it gets to spot that's what we're doing and then we can just take a deep breath let go and relax and, you know, yeah. and, 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 and if we could perfect that I think that would be a great thing but um there's, there's less where people <laughs> tend to, tend to look I mean in the Buddhist tradition there's a whole list of perfections which are all about you know perfection of yeah. wisdom really and uh yeah, so starting with generosity. Um, and these are very, very old ideas. You know, 100 years ago, um, T.S. Eliot in his poem, The Wasteland, he concludes yes. the whole thing with three words from the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad, the oldest Upanishad, that are promoting really just the three foundational qualities of living a good life, being a good person, living in accordance with Dharma. And they are generosity, compassion, and restraint. And all of them require mm. us to think about something more than us. How, how do you restrain yourself except in relation to, to others? Um, how do you give unless there are others to give to? What is compassion yeah. if not you know, an understanding of how we're relating? So these are tools that are there that are very old. They're very well established. They form the bedrock of what gets called the Sanatana Dharma, the timeless um, you know, right way of behaving that is common not just to Hinduism, although some say that's the true name of Hinduism. They're not right. Um, it's also there in Buddhist tradition. <laughs> <laughs> it's a universal sense that there's a you know this golden rule do unto others yeah. as you'd have them do unto you it's a very basic idea <laughs> and so we can think about that i think through looking at the way that we relate to to, to knowledge and you know our rightness and uh, it's, it's always a good opportunity to, to to spot when we think we're right and we're getting that burning sense of you know haven't i done good by telling somebody they're wrong that's the time yeah. to check out reflect think mm, maybe actually make some amends and learn something <laughs> so in the yoga space how do we do this in a very like i'm a tactile person right like i mm. i, I want to like while i love to think i also want to think in accordance with we're thinking so we can act right i'm an action-oriented human so how do we build this into a yoga studio 
we have conversations with people, as you said earlier. Mm. How else do we do? How? What other ways can we do that? What steps could we take? Well, I suppose yeah, dethroning any individual mm. or yeah. text or tradition from yeah. Yeah, being center stage um and, and and acknowledging this this plurality of influences including you know influences that don't come from indian tradition and you know the modern yeah. world's full of them uh, and yeah. starting to see that then you know we're we're, we're co-creators in a process uh, and and that's mm. part of even you know how you might sequence a class uh, and so it can be part of teacher training to think about our own agency here um, and this is the antidote to you know, the current fixation on the concept of cultural appropriation of course we're appropriating it's what people do <laughs> of course our cultures of evolve course. it's, it's how yes. mindfully we're doing it and whether or not we're doing it disrespectfully and deliberately yes. causing harm that's the problem yes. So the more we think about what we're doing and why we're doing it, the more we're engaging in this. And that can be applied to anything. Um, and yeah, whether it's actually your own practice, so some more invitational way of uh, you know, sort of presenting yoga class that, that isn't yeah. just follow the instructions and is more you know, uh, inquiry based without just giving it all over to the students. Say, do what you want for 90 minutes and I'll call Shavasana at the end. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and then it's also there perhaps in, you know, the idea that we might even set homework that is about go mm. away with this theme um, yeah. that you try to find a way of exploring for yourself physically, uh, mentally, and, you know, we might say spiritually. So perhaps yeah. encouraging people to keep a little practice journal in which you write, you know, one sentence even about what's coming up for you in relation to this pointer, whether it's to do with what you do with the body or how you behave outside of yoga practice or whatever it might be. There's yeah. just there's something that gives people a little bit more, I guess, involvement in, in this direction of their own inquiry rather yeah. than thinking they come to class to get all the goodies and really yoga yeah. class you know obviously again this is heresy in the yoga industry yoga class ought to be a training in how to not come back to class <laughs> yes yes 100 percent. i mean they're going to come back anyway but <laughs> sure and that's a nice thing because yeah. you know we, we, yes. we all need a top-up and we need yeah. a reminder you know and that's that's what teachers are for but the, the point is to keep you know sort of pushing a little bit more sort of that's not really like pushing is maybe the wrong metaphor but there does have to be you know yoga has to get us out of our comfort zone yeah so uh, part of that comfort zone that we're in is you know sitting there please tell me what to do teacher while also being really averse to being told what to do <laughs> so we have to we have, we have to be encouraged uh, you know uh, urged to to just take a few more steps and that's that is how you know you get someone to ride a bike you stand behind yeah. them you put the training wheels on and eventually you, you know you're not holding their back they're off <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> yeah. and, and you know they, they they come back and need the same same steps again and again before they get it and take off yeah. the training wheels and are away but once you learn the skill you can ride a bike doesn't mean there's no point going on a bike ride with other people or right. perhaps even you know going to see a coach to talk about technique <laughs> yeah but you know in the end you know yoga teaching is is something that's really just facilitation and um it's it's facilitating an experience but at the yes. same time that experience is something that we're all having for ourselves nobody's giving it to us we're giving it to ourselves by yeah. you know, actually engaging with reality <laughs> rather than checking out <laughs> okay I'm going to, I'm going to, okay, you're my favorite person now. I'll like, oh, <laughs> before I just sit here and go, oh my God, I agree with everything you just said. How do people find out how to learn from you, how to read your books, tell people contact information. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, well, I, I wrote this book, The Truth of Yoga, which was my attempt to sum up you know, everything a yoga teacher really should know about history and philosophy based on my own studies and inquiry and what led me into teaching these subjects. Um, and so I also have a website, truthofyoga.com, where I offer online courses on the major yoga texts um, and also some of the uh, scholarly work that's gone on in the last uh, decade or so that's helped us to understand a lot more about how yoga has evolved and is in constant evolution and we are part of that process um so those are the two you know best places to go to start with but also you know i have a podcast ancient futures which you can find on all platforms where i talk to people about you know how these ideas from yoga philosophy and related traditions are still relevant but also how you know other ways of seeing are relevant you know i don't yeah. just talk to yoga people i talk to people involved in psychedelic therapy uh, yeah. buddhist practitioners christians uh, people who've got nothing to do with this world in any way shape or form but are engaged in you know creatively rethinking something you know anything that's encouraging us to think for ourselves is what i'm into so uh, that's that's probably a good place to go if you like uh, like chats there's already about 22 at the time of recording of those out nice. in the world and there will be more <laughs> so uh, yeah that's another place to go and that's hosted on the substack platform where i also publish essays so ancientfutures.substack.com i'm gonna subscribe right now <laughs> oh fabulous thank you <laughs> thank you for coming on the podcast this is such a good conversation thank you well thank you it's been a real pleasure <laughs> thank you so much daniel for joining me in this discussion here are my key takeaways first is praising our students just a version of praising yourself this is an interesting train of thought and i'm curious of what you think about it i had a good long reflection about this after my conversation with daniel and i realized that I have never been much into praising my students, but I do really love telling them that they're great. What about you? Are you a praise teacher? Do you like being praised as a student? Next, if we're all one, how do we have relationships with each other? There's something I really want to highlight about that question because I actually talk to a lot of folks about how to use yoga philosophy and lifestyle principles to connect with other people. I think our relationships, and I mean of all kinds, I'm not just talking about romantic relationships, are some of the most meaningful and nurturing experiences that we can have in our lives. And there's a lot of data to support that claim. Have you read The Good Life by Drs. Robert Waldinger and Mark Schultz? If you're curious to explore more about the science behind this topic, this is a good and fairly easy read. Next, liberation from yoga is liberation from wanting anything. I don't have anything to add here, but I really wanted to highlight that Daniel said that quote. It's one of my favorites. Next, we can develop an understanding that while yoga texts ask us to become better versions of ourselves, we can also take this knowledge and become better citizens in the world. I love this idea that Daniel puts forth to us. Can we expand our understanding of liberation to also understand our relationships with each other and our greater communities? Next, we have to find our own way to acknowledge our individual experience within a collective experience. As I talked about in the chat, I use this concept very directly while teaching yoga asana classes. I build in time within my classes where my students have the opportunity to answer the call of what their own body and experience needs. And there's also times in that same class where we come together to have a collective experience. Nervous system co-regulation is a pretty magical thing for creating the collective experience. And it is your job as a yoga professional to remind our students 
to also answer that individual call as well. Next, stop getting so hung up on the me and instead be open to the idea that I might be wrong. I'm going to be honest, I'm going to work on this one probably for the rest of my life. And I know a lot of us out there feel the same way. And finally, I referenced my friend Coley Sanders, who does DEI work both within the yoga space and also in the greater world for educational institutions and companies. And I convinced her to come on the podcast at the end of this season to talk about being the perfect activist. That's a myth, right? Well, Coley shares it all. She covers a deep dive into white supremacy, patriarchy, and we even talk about an episode of Friends referencing white women's hair that honestly makes me seriously uncomfortable. (laughs) So I can't wait to share that conversation with you. Up next week, I get to talk to another one of my yoga world favorites. Steph Galante is back with us in the podcast. Steph does self-care work for activists and liberation seekers. And we talk about our perfectionist journey, if alignment is dressed up perfectionism, and more. I can't wait for you to listen. I'm so grateful that you took time to listen to the podcast today, my friends. And I will catch you next week around the water cooler.